KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, how can we save democracy from white nationalism and right-wing authoritarianism? Steve Phillips argues we need to organize and turn out millions of non-voters with a long-term data-based strategy. Steve's new book is How We Win the Civil War, Securing a Multiracial Democracy and Ending White Supremacy for Good. Plus, Stacey Abrams, running for governor in Georgia, is behind in the polls of likely voters, which the pollsters define as people who vote regularly. But her whole strategy is to organize and mobilize people who do not vote regularly to expand the electorate with young people, people of color, and those the political scientists call low propensity voters. She explains in this interview from April 2019, after her first campaign for governor. But first, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Good to be here, John. Well, it's five days until Election Day. Voting by mail began October 10th in California. Early voting in person in L.A. began October 28th. So millions of people have already voted. Historically, let's just remind ourselves here, the party in power almost always loses seats at the midterm. It happened to Trump, it happened to Obama, and the historical pattern is probably will also happen to Joe Biden, not looking at any of the particulars. Basically, you get two years as the new president to do whatever you're going to do, and after that, you're stuck in a, a stalemate. We had some hope that this might not, just maybe might not be the case this year, but the polls have showed a tightening of key races everywhere, according to the New York Times, our national newspaper of record. Democrats are ahead in some of the key Senate races. In Arizona, Mark Kelly is ahead of Blake Masters. In Pennsylvania, John Fetterman is ahead of Dr. Oz. But we are tied in Nevada. Incumbent Cor Catherine Cortez Mastow is maybe a little behind Adam Laxalt. Of course, the polls may be off. I want to return to this question because of but I've talked about before the likely voter problem. This all depends on estimating who's a likely voter. And of course, some key Democratic groups have put huge resources into changing the definition of the likely voter, recruiting people to vote who have not been likely to vote in the past. And taking the lead on this is the union Unite Here, which has been working especially in Nevada Arizona and Pennsylvania, where they are the largest ground operation. Let's talk about how Unite Here works. For starters, do they use TV ads? They don't. And in the universe of TV ads in general, Republicans tend to outpace Democrats because they have access to more money. Uh, and if the Republicans themselves, the candidates themselves, don't have access to more money, Lord knows political action committees and such certainly do. So uh, if the Democrats are to prevail, uh, usually they need a superior ground game. This gets us to unite here, but it also gets us to the question of democratic messaging. And let's go back to TV because there has been no market more saturated in television ads uh, than the Las Vegas market, which is also where three quarters of Nevada voters live, or Nevada voters, as they prefer to say. 
Unite Here has been committed to a waging ground game sort of above and beyond the normal for some time. In 2020, you will recall, because of COVID, most organizations that usually had people out walking precincts didn't because of COVID. They just worked the phones. Uh, Unite Here had managed to uh, secure special safety equipment and safety protocols because their members had to work in hotels. And they used those uh, on precinct walks. They were often the only group out there walking in uh, states where they had significant numbers of members. And they've always had a program of having members uh, able to take uh, time off for which the union then paid them to be really full-time canvassers. And they've been doing this for much of the year. Let Uh, me just underline, paid full-time canvassers. Well, Unite Here is a pretty exceptional union in terms of things in cities where it's strong that they've been able to win in their contracts. Uh, When I was at the LA Weekly in the 1990s, they managed to secure in the hotel contracts a provision enabling members who were deported because they were undocumented to reclaim their old jobs if they could come back. You know, so they they got some pretty extraordinary things in their contracts. And no local of Unite Here is stronger than its Las Vegas local, which has 50,000 members who work on almost all of the major hotel casinos in Las Vegas. So they're able with that clout to get some provisions, but also in places where they're not that strong, like Philadelphia, they raise some money and have members walking in, in great numbers. But what's really different is the messaging. At this point, People in Las Vegas have so had it with the the television attack ads and what have you, that if someone knocks on their door and say they're campaigning for candidate X, nine tens out of 10, that door is going to be slammed in their face. It it doesn't matter really for whom, uh, they've just had it. However, facing these kinds of issues, which they knew they were going to face, Unite Here leads with an issue that's probably both very pressing and no one has knocked on their door saying anything like this ever. The issue is rents in Las Vegas, which are the main cause of in cost of living increases in Nevada. Rents in Clark County, which is Metro Vegas, have gone up by 25% in a single year, which is you know ridiculous. And a lot of people who may or may not be regular voters cannot afford that. And so what the Unite Here members do is knock on the door, say they're one of the issues they're there for is rents, and they have a petition to create rent control on a statewide level, which would really address the main cause of cost of living increases in Las Vegas. That can usually get a dialogue going, and their metrics show that, you know, the, the far, few, far fewer people slam the door if that's the opening. Eventually, assuming a dialogue gets going, they get around to the point that the Democratic uh, incumbent governor who's up for re-election, Steve Sisolak, and the uh, endangered Republic, uh, endangered Democratic senator who's up for re-election, Kathleen uh, Cortez Masto, support statewide rent control, and their Republican opponents do not. I would argue that anyone who's walking precincts on the Democratic side of the ledger at this late date, had better have a message like that if they're going to get any any uh, increased voter participation 
out of people who uh, can be persuaded to vote for Democrats. So let's just underline here. First of all, door-to-door, face-to-face human contact. Second, they lead not with vote for my candidate, but the big issue that we are concerned about. And here's what we think we should do about it. Only then do they introduce the candidate. If you think that rent is a big issue, here's what you can do in the election coming up. This is an excellent approach. And what's more, they don't just do it in the last week before election day. They've been doing it for months in Nevada. And they've also been working for months with similar program in Arizona and in Pennsylvania. And they did it two years ago. So some of these people may even remember that Unite Here came to their door and uh, talked to them. So the idea is to turn reluctant uh, voters or non-voters into active voters. And these are the people who, since the pollsters regard them as not likely to vote because maybe they didn't vote two years ago, they almost certainly didn't vote four years ago, they don't get counted in the polls. So we have some hope that if the ground game of Unite Here and the other Democratic groups that are doing this, the New Georgia Project, Lucha in Arizona, the AFL-CIO is a group called Working America that does the same sort of thing, that the polls may be off in underestimating the turnout of new Democratic voters. And the pollsters themselves are very nervous about this. The pollsters are more nervous this election than ever before. They're worried they may be missing lots of people. Their biggest worry, though, is not the unlikely Democratic voters. Their biggest worry is the Trump voters, because they've discovered that Trump voters are much less likely to talk to pollsters than Democratic voters. Now, they have various ways of compensating for this, but they say that was definitely the case in 2000. What do you make of the problems that pollsters are facing this year? Well, pollsters have been facing this kind of problem for uh, about a decade, as uh, the Republican universe, the MAGA universe, kind of separates itself out from mainstream political culture, which includes polling, even polling by and for Republicans. So that's a real problem. Pollsters had a problem when people switched from their landlines to cell phones. It's, it's, to put it mildly, an inexact science, and the degree to which pollsters have been off in uh, recent elections has been sobering for them. I would add that in Nevada, there's a particular uh, history of sometimes getting it wrong. Uh, the last time Harry Reid was up for re-election in Nevada, the polls had him down by, by five points. But Reid had a great ground game, and Unite Here had a great ground game, and that turned out voters whom the pollsters had considered to be non-voters and therefore not included in the polls. So there are there are all kinds of problematics in, in polling, and uh, we don't know if the kind of activity that Unite Here is engaged in offsets an undercount of Trump voters. On the other hand, uh, we will soon find out. Well, you talked about the Republican advantage in fundraising. Um, The biggest example of that, I have to say, is Los Angeles, where the former Republican, Rick Caruso, we read, is spending $100 million of his own money 
to try to be, defeat Karen Bass uh, for mayor. Is this going to succeed? Can $100 million get you elected mayor of Los Angeles? Well, the LA Times has come out with uh, a series of polls. I, they may well come out with one more, which would inform my answer, since I do not know the answer. I think Karen Bass still has to be favored just because of the overwhelming tilt towards Democrats. But, you know, if you look at what happened in San Francisco in the recall of Jesus Boudin, the uh, DA there, if you look at what's happening in Oregon right now, where a Republican in a state that hasn't had a Republican governor in 40 years might just squeak by because there's a third candidate in the race. The Democratic incumbent, largely due to the levels of homelessness and associated other issues in Portland, should Caruso be elected, there's a bit of a parallel to Richard Reardon being elected in 1993. Reardon, I don't think, would have been elected had there not been the uprising after the acquittal of the cops who beat the hell out of Rodney King. And the levels of homelessness in LA make it just possible, I think plus 100 million bucks that Caruso could, uh, could, could squeak by. Returning to the national picture, we've said the historical patterns is Republicans gain. Let's assume Republicans win the House, which has always seemed likely. What, what are they likely to do with that power? Will impeaching Joe Biden be their number one priority? Well, Kevin McCarthy has uh, an infinite capacity for succumbing to pressure on him from the right. And so I think that is indeed one of the things they might may, may do. It, it should be noted that they're not running on any program of their own. So opposing and wherever possible vilifying and demonizing Democrats seems to be the first 20 or 30 uh, items on their to-do list. <laughs> As the uh, New York Times notes online today, and I presume in print tomorrow, enough Republicans are talking about, well, making some modifications to Social Security and Medicare. Well, of course, if they even do that, uh, uh, Biden, of course, will veto it. And it's really handing an issue to the Democrats. But, you know, Republicans, uh, uh, you know, left to their own fever little policy brains come up with things like that. And, you know, we shall we shall see. We'll also see what they do on uh, on Ukraine, where I don't think even though some have suggested cutting off funding, I don't think uh, Mitch McConnell, who, you know, still is a defender of traditional American hegemony, would go for that. But, you know. There, there, there are all kinds of things that uh, they're, they're capable of doing, mainly simply defamation of Democrats. So let's talk about something else. Let's talk about Elon Musk, the richest man in the world. He bought Twitter. What do you think about that? I think that's bad news in all kinds of ways. And I see by mainstream journalistic accounts that a lot of the companies that advertise on Twitter, and advertising is where Twitter gets 90%, if not more, of its revenue are thinking of holding back just now, uh, anticipating uh, a, a great flood of uh, hate speech, fake news, and Lord knows what else, if uh, Musk proceeds with letting, uh, letting everything rip. And of course, Musk's own tweeting of, about, you know, the absurd far-right conspiracy theory of what really happened to Paul Pelosi certainly doesn't create any confidence that, that he will withstand his own urges to have all kinds of crap uh, put out through what is now his company. He is sole owner, 
sole member of the board of directors and will continue to be so. On Wednesday, Elon Musk said that he will not allow Trump back on Twitter before the midterms, which of course is next Tuesday. It's you yeah, know five yeah, days wow, away. Boy. We got five days without Trump. Yeah, Trump that's, that's early, boy. Trump himself wrote Friday morning, quote, I am very happy that Twitter is now in sane hands and will no longer be run by radical left lunatics and maniacs, close quote. Who are these people? The oddity, which I've addressed in one of the pieces I've written for The Prospect, of course, is that uh, my peers and yours, John, journalists and academics, uh, have come to rely on Twitter, uh, you know, a hell of a lot. Now, let me sort of separate this out. I think some kind of social media outlet for these kinds of discussions is fine. I don't think it's fine if they are uh, on Elon Musk's uh, companies. Forum. I, I don't expect a lot of people to drop off. I have the luxury of having other outlets for my opinions, God knows. So I am in, the, in this sense in a privileged class. But, uh, you know, I think folks should be looking for exits. And I think there are a lot of people who are being sacked this week at Twitter who have the know-how to set up something that provides this kind of forum with some content uh, moderation as well. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of dollars floating out there that I think might just be interested in, in helping that along. In one little postscript here, Trump also said, I will not be going back on Twitter. He says he will stay on his own platform, Truth Social. Of course, he has a financial interest in keeping Truth Social uh, going. So for Trump, the question really is, whether to keep making money on his own platform or get a much louder megaphone going back on Elon Musk's Twitter and let Musk make the money off of his tweets. What do you think he's going to choose? You know, for Trump, that's an agonizing choice. <laughs> uh, making money and having a megaphone are really just about his only two priorities uh, other than accosting women, whether they want to be accosted or not. So I would hesitate to predict. Uh, he'll do whatever he thinks is better for him. Harold Meyerson on the agonizing choices facing Donald Trump. You can read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you on the show. And always great to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. How do we win the midterms? How can we save democracy from white nationalism and right-wing authoritarianism? For that, we turn to Steve Phillips. He wrote the bestseller, Brown is the New White, How the Demographic Revolution Has Created a New American Majority. He hosts the podcast, Democracy in Color, and he writes for The Nation and The Guardian. His new book, just published, is How We Win the Civil War, Securing a Multiracial Democracy and Ending White Supremacy for Good. We reached him today in San Francisco. Steve Phillips, welcome back. Thanks for having me on, glad to be here. One week to go, and too many of the key races, especially for senators and governors, are too close. At least that's what the polls say. Maybe the polls are wrong. But let's take a step back to see the big picture here. 
what kind of fight are we in right now? Well, we're in a big one, and we're, we're, we're still in a big one. The Confederates and their ideological and political, in some ways, genealogical heirs have never stopped fighting the Civil War. When the, the New Press approached me about writing another book, I kind of suggested using the Civil War as a metaphor to frame up this political moment. This was in uh, April of 2020. Months later, people carrying the Confederate flag, wearing sweatshirts saying MAGA Civil War, January uh, 6, 2021, stormed the United States Capitol, hunted down our elected officials, and tried to block the peaceful transfer of power. And I'm like, well, this is not so uh, uh, metaphorical anymore. <laughs> right. And so we are quite literally remaining in a battle. I, the intro to my book, that I title it, A Choice Between Democracy and Whiteness. And that's drawn from a quote by uh, the historian Taylor Branch, who was talking with Isabel Wilkerson in her book about the rise of white domestic terrorism under Trump and how that that being a backlash to the demographic revolution. He says that people said they would not stand for being a minority in their own country. The question is, if we offer them a choice between democracy and whiteness, how many would choose whiteness? And Wilkerson says, we let that hang in the air, neither of us willing to hazard a guest. And that's what we, that's what happened on January 6th, is they had the most pro-white nationalist president we've had in a long time, and then facing off against democracy, where all 50 governors in the state, and in the, in the country, Republican and Democrat, had certified the election results. And yet people stormed the United States Capitol to overthrow the democratic peaceful transfer of power to keep that white nationalist man in the White House. And that remains the fight that we're facing. And that in many ways is are the stakes for the midterms. And those are also the stakes heading towards 2024. So how can we defeat the people who want to make America a white nation? Let's, let's remember what we achieved in 2020. Trump was defeated. Democrats took control of Congress. How did we do this? What did it take? The essence of, of the fight really does come down to democracy and voting and electoral participation, which the Republicans actually understand far better in terms of the threat that that poses by the amount of time, energy, and resources they devote to voter suppression. So after Obama was elected, there's a whole wave of voter suppression legislation, voter ID laws to try to stop that from happening again. And then after the Democrats ousted Trump in 2020 and took control of the Senate in 2021, there's another whole wave of voter suppression legislation. But the way that the, the, they were defeated is by maximizing and mobilizing the new American majority. The vast majority of people of color, in alliance with what I call the meaningful minority of whites who are progressive, are a majority of people in this country. And if we get that population out to the polls, we win. And when there has been large turnout, Democrats have won. Every presidential election since 1992, with the sole exception of 2004, the Democratic nominee has gotten the most votes. And so that's a very strong data set that there is a majority who supports the Democratic vision, the multiracial, multicultural vision of the country, rather than as a white nationalist nation. But you have to get people to the polls. But that's what happened in 2020. There was massive turnout. Joe Biden got more votes than anybody who's ever run for president in the history of this country. And that's what enabled Democrats to oust Trump and flip Georgia and Arizona as well. Let's talk about Georgia and Arizona. Let's start with Georgia. Let's start with Stacey Abrams. Let's start by acknowledging what Stacey Abrams 
achieved in Georgia over the last decade. Georgia voted for the Democrat for president for the first time since Bill Clinton in 92. Georgia, let us remember, elected two Democrats to the Senate, saved Congress for the Democrats in in 2020. Um, All that happened because, well, because of exactly what? Because of the vision and wisdom and tenacity of Stacey Abrams. And so that's one of the cornerstone chapters of my book where I offer uh, case studies of how we in fact win in places that were formerly part of the Confederacy. I mean, Georgia is where gone with the wind is set right, in terms of <laughs> yes. its centrality in this country. I met Stacey Abrams 11 years ago, and she had this 35-page PowerPoint plan for how she was going to flip Georgia. She said at that time, we lose in Georgia by about 200,000 votes on average in each election statewide. There are a million and a half eligible non-voting people of color. I'm going to go register them. And she said about that work, she created new Georgia projects. She got Nakima Williams to be the chair of the Georgia Democratic Party. And they have steadily and methodically registered, organized, and mobilized voters under the radar and without the support of many people at the top levels of national politics. I titled my Georgia chapter, Georgia, that's not one we expected, which is what Joe Biden said on election night as he was going through. Says, we're ahead in Georgia. That's not one we expected because they hadn't seen what Stacey was doing and they hadn't invested in that work. But she brought about, she created the infrastructure, hired the, got people hired at community level, strengthened the organizations to maximize the turnout of the new American majority in Georgia. And that's what enabled Biden to win that state. And that's what enabled the uh, uh, Warnock and Ossoff to win those seats and to flip control of the entire United States Senate. So right now, one week before Election Day, the polls in Georgia say that Reverend Raphael Warnock is ahead of Herschel Walker, but not by a lot. And the polls say the odds are that Brian Kemp is going to beat Stacey Abrams for governor. What do you say? I say it's all going to be about voter turnout again. Who does a better job of getting their voters out? And then who does a better job of stopping our voters from coming to the polls? And that's really what the battle is going to be in Georgia. I think it's going to be super close on both levels. But even fundamentally, I'm just thinking about this today, is that the fact that Herschel Walker is even competitive speaks volumes about the absence of criteria and values and uh, intellectual integrity in terms of the much of the voting electorate within Georgia. This man not only has no credentials at all in terms of public life, in terms and no expressed interest in the issues that the that the government faces. On top of that, he's a clear uh, a domestic violence perpetrator who held a gun to his wife's head, who is a, a hypocrite and is moralizing and has fathered multiple children and encouraged different people to have abortions. And yet he's still competitive. And so what does that say about the electorate in Georgia? It's a reflection of just how high that mountain is. But we are very, very close. And it's going to be a very, very close election. Now, I have one critique of the polling in Georgia and everywhere else, but especially Georgia. What the polls measure is what they call likely voters. How do you define a likely voter? It's somebody basically who's voted, who votes regularly, especially in the midterm four years ago. But of course, Stacey Abrams' whole project 
is to get people to vote who have not voted four years ago or, or two years ago. So I wonder if the polls could be missing the new voters who have been mobilized by the New Georgia Project and its other organizations around the country. Yes, by definition, they missed them. So the, the, the definition of a likely voter is somebody who has voted frequently in the past. And the whole cornerstone of what the work that the Georgia progressive movement is doing is bringing out new voters and unlikely voters. But that, through the screening process of the pollsters, they don't look at those 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 people. And the, the dominant question is, I didn't even realize how much things had actually changed. So the Kemp won in 2018 by 54,000 votes. There are 1.6 million new voters in Georgia since 2018. Wow. And so that is a very profound reality, which is why they passed the voter suppression law in, in 2021. And that's what will determine uh, where we're at in terms of who actually prevails uh, in Georgia. The second state you mentioned was Arizona. We also need to know the lessons of what it took to win in Arizona. Of course, Arizona was the state that finally put Biden over the top in 2020. And let's remember a little of the history there. Arizona was Barry Goldwater country. It was the birthplace of, uh, of the new right. In Arizona right now, the Republicans are running election deniers for both governor and senator. And right now the polls show Democrat Mark Kelly is ahead of Republican Blake Masters. But in the Arizona governor's race, the very frightening Trumper Carrie Lake is ahead of the Democrat Katie Dobbs. Obama was there just Monday this week. You say one of the key architects of the organization that defeated Trump in Arizona was a man named John Laredo. I never heard of John Laredo. Who is he and what has he done? John was the head of the state Senate in the early 2000s. He is a protege of Cesar Chavez in terms of the in terms of having roots within the Latino movement and organizing and activism in that regard. And he's a, a behind the scenes leader of the different parts of the coalition um, within Arizona or is a network of uh, community based organizations called One Arizona. There's a activist network called Arizona Wins, and he's been part of helping get all those entities created. And so he called together all these groupings over a decade ago, and he asked, he says, who's hired of getting their asses kicked? <laughs> and so do we want to come together, make a common plan, work together over a number of years? And that's the work that led to the creation of organizations such as uh, Lucha and other community-based organizations that have registered and brought into the, uh, the electorate hundreds of thousands of Latino voters. And that is the foundation, as well as other voters of color, the, the Native Americans as well. Arizona is one of the largest Native American populations in the country per state. The increase in Native American voters from 2016 to 2020 was larger than Biden's margin of victory. And so that's the foundation, that increased Latino vote, the increased voters of color that propelled um, Biden to that victory and that propelled um, Mark Kelly. So that'll be determining who wins in 20, uh, 2022. So I, I learned from your book, uh, How We Win, a uh, turnout for Latinos in Arizona from 2016 to 2020 increased from 34%, a terrible number, to 45%, really a huge increase. But the turnout for whites was much bigger. And of course, whites have been winning a lot of statewide uh, offices there. 
this looks bad to me, but you say it's actually very promising in the long term. Please explain why. It's because there's so much more upside to go. And so that it's gone from you know the low 30s to the low 40s, but if the whites are already at, at 70%, imagine if you get 75% of eligible Latinos to vote, it makes the electorate that much more progressive and that much more favorable. And so that's one of the key variables to look at in Arizona as well as other, as well as in places like Texas. Right? When the, uh, Trump won Texas by 600,000 votes, there were 4 million eligible non-voting people of color in Texas. I want to talk about Texas because Texas demographically is quite similar to California. Same proportion of Latinos, 40%. But California is totally blue in statewide elections, and Texas is totally red in statewide elections. How do you explain this difference, and and who's doing the best work to change Texas? It has to do with voter turnout and voter participation. And again, voter suppression uh, is much more rampant in Texas, and there's less investment in the infrastructure around funding the groups and the work that is working in the communities to turn out the vote. So groups like Texas Organizing Project is doing heroic work, and they've been very successful in flipping entirely, largely, uh, Harris County, which was formerly Republican held where most of the offices held now in Harris County, and Harris County is larger than many states, are held by Democrats. And that's because of this work of transforming the composition of the electorate. But top has a budget, Texas Oregon Project was around, you know, 5 million or so. They should have a budget around 30 or 40 million if you really want to transform the state of Texas. And so California has had more infrastructure and investment in its groups, as well as there was a stronger backlash when there was the whole anti-immigrant efforts in uh, the early 90s uh, and that led many Latinos to register and participate in the electoral process that changed the composition of the electorate in California. Finally, your, your emphasis in your book, uh, How We Win the Civil War, is we need to focus on long-term organizing and we need to focus on data-driven organizing. So 2022 is going to be one data point. It's not going to be the last one. Right. And, and 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 absolutely. So Stacey Abrams wrote a long piece in the New York Times about how to turn your red state blue. And she did this after the 2020 election. She says it may take 10 years, but we should do it anyways. All of the case studies in my book, I have five case studies, each of them had 10-year journeys where you had the same leadership, the same organizations carrying out that fight. And so 2022 midterms was one point on this uh, a journey. But we're going to we keep going. We're heading immediately to 2024 election, where there also will be larger turnout. So whatever happens in the midterms, that we have to continue to fight that fight to 2024. But we have to play the long game, which is what the conservatives and the neo-confederates have been doing. But the trends are in our favor and in our, in our direction. And so if we hold to that and continue to invest in transforming this population majority into a voting majority, we really should build political power and win and be able to transform much of this country. Steve Phillips, you can read his piece at thenation.com, Civil War Isn't on the Horizon, The Original Battle Never Ended. His new book is How We Win the Civil War, Securing a Multiracial Democracy and Ending White Supremacy for Good. Steve, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for having me on.
the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Stacey Abrams is behind in the polls of likely voters, which the pollsters define as people who vote regularly, especially in the last midterms, four years ago. But her whole strategy is to organize and mobilize people who do not vote regularly to expand the electorate with young people, people of color, and those the political scientists call low propensity voters. We spoke with her in April 2019, after her first campaign for governor. Before we talk about uh, your book, Lead from the Outside, I want to talk about what you accomplished in Georgia when you ran for governor. Everybody I know says that if there'd been a fair count, you would be the governor of Georgia right now. Um, but you did accomplish anyway some amazing things in that race. So first I want to talk about the votes you got despite the votes you weren't allowed to get. How did your vote compare with other Democrats in recent history? So we received more votes than any Democrat in Georgia history, uh, including President Obama, Secretary Clinton, any any Democrat who's ever run. Uh, we were only under by 54,000 votes, but what I was so excited about was the composition of the electorate. We tripled Latino turnout. We tripled Asian Pacific Islander turnout. We increased youth participation rates by 139%. We increased black turnout by 40%. But to put that in context, in 2014, 1.1 million Democrats voted altogether. In 2018, 1.2 million black people voted for me. And we centered communities of color. We centered marginalized communities. We talked about their issues. And I was told that that would be to the detriment of my ability to secure white votes. And I actually received a higher percentage of white votes than any candidate in Georgia, uh, any Democratic candidate in Georgia since Bill Clinton. How did you do it? (laughs) Well, one is that I believe what I say. I, I believe diversity matters, and I think it's an active responsibility. It's insufficient to say you want something to be so, but you don't find your own responsibility to make it happen. And so our campaign was grounded in talking about identities, but never as an exclusionary principle. People vote, people participate when they think they can be seen. And my job was to show up in places to have either firsthand knowledge or have a supporting team that could help me understand what concerns were animating those communities or worse, what concerns were keeping them out of the body politic. And we built a campaign around creating access and creating a pathway for their participation. And it worked. And the work that went into this wasn't just one campaign for governor. No. <laughs> so one thing I talk about in, in the book and Lead from the Outside is the responsibility to build that systems don't just come into being and therefore dismantling those systems or creating your own systems also require intentionality and thoughtfulness and infrastructure. And I, by my nature, am a systems person. I believe that democracy should be vibrant and engaged, but I also believe that poverty is immoral. And I believe that communities are too often kept distant from their power by being convinced that their power doesn't exist. And so I've spent the last 40, well, I'm 45, so let's say between one and five, I was probably not as active, (laughs) but (laughs) I've spent most of my waking life thinking about how do you get more people to the table? How do you get more people engaged? And in the last 20 years, I've been able to put that into practice through 
my work in the private sector, the nonprofit sector, and certainly the political sector. You have a really important section of your book on how to fight for groups of which you are not a part. And of course, we have to do this because we need allies if we're going to win. But it's hard to do that right. You say empathy is not enough. What is your approach? I think you have to have understanding, but you also have to lift up those who actually have those experiences. Sometimes empathy gives us an excuse. It lets us think that because I have something similar in my background that I now know what you know and I know what you need. And that's when allyship becomes patronizing. What's more important is creating space for the people who actually have those experiences to do something about it. So, for example, when I became Democratic leader, I took over a caucus that had very few staff, in fact, almost no one. And I was building a staff, but I built a staff that looked like me and looked like people I know, so it was black and white. And I took myself to task that in a state that was quickly diversifying, where Latinos were becoming nearly 10% of the population, where Asian Pacific Islanders were growing in force, I had a responsibility to increase their access. And so I created an internship program to bring them on board initially, and then I found the money necessary to hire them. I hired a Palestinian, a young Palestinian woman to be my executive assistant because I could not speak authentically about engaging the Muslim community and not find space for their employment. And these are all people who were absolutely qualified for the jobs they had, but I had to be intentional about creating space so they had a platform to do the leadership they needed to do. So the big question is, after you accomplished all these things, the huge increase in turnout of Latinos, Asian Americans, young people, uh, after you got more votes than anybody, including Obama on the Democratic ticket, how come the Republican won? And because I was running against a cartoon villain who was the referee, the scorekeeper, and the contestant. He had 10 years of voter suppression under his belt. He had built a system that built on top of previous attempts at voter suppression that actually started under his predecessor. And he manipulated the laws, uh, aggressively enforced and selectively enforced those laws. He failed also to do the fundamentals of his job. And so we had this marriage of incompetence and malfeasance that allowed him to suppress access to the vote. I cannot prove empirically that I would have gotten every one of the votes that were suppressed. But if you look at the demography of those votes, if you look at the intentionality of his actions, I think it's a really good guess. So let's talk about Fair Fight Action. So Fair Fight Action was born of my frustration, my disappointment, but also my anger. Uh, democracy is ours. I am an American. I am entitled to have my voice heard. But so were the millions of people who cast their ballots on both sides of the aisle and the tens of thousands who were not allowed to have their voices heard. My responsibility beyond getting an office is ensuring that anyone who wants to speak up about the, the direction they want to see for our state or for our country, that they are heard. And in Georgia, they were not. And so I want there to be a fair fight. And let's be clear, no matter what happens, I will never win the office of governor in 2018. It won't happen. But my responsibility is larger than my personal benefit. And that is that we fix the system itself. Fair fight action focuses on three things. Registration access, ballot access, and ballot counting. 
making sure that you can get on the rolls, you can stay on the rolls, you have the ability to actually cast a ballot, they don't close your precinct or deny you access to an absentee ballot, and that your vote counts once you cast it. And we're going to do that through litigation, through legislation, and through advocacy work. And where do we stand on that today? So the litigation is ongoing. We are currently in a tete-a-tete with the Secretary of State and the Governor's Office, or technically the Secretary of State's Office in the state of Georgia. They are seeking to dismiss our motion. Um, They're seeking to dismiss our lawsuit with a motion to dismiss. Uh, We will keep fighting. We believe we will be successful. Uh, We have been fighting a terrible bill that has moved through the legislature and sits on the governor's desk that will allow him to spend $150 million more than has ever been spent by any state on voting machines. And he's likely to purchase machines that are known to be flawed, known to be hackable, known to be vulnerable. They've been called the worst voting machines out there. And it is a happy coincidence that the company that stands likely to win the bid formerly employed his chief of staff, his deputy chief of staff, and his general counsel just months before he became governor. Now, uh, you're an attorney. You graduated from Yale Law School. <laughs> what, uh, what do you think are your chances in court on this one? Uh, we think that on the issue of litigation, we think that we have a very strong case. We believe that it's uh, sui generis in that most litigation on voting rights have tried to tackle individual elements. Uh, precinct closures or voter ID or uh, closing of access, you know, the issues that we faced, and they, they tend to approach it individually. We are looking at it systemically. We are taking the Brown versus the Board of Education approach, which is to say that while de jure, while the law may say it's so, the fact of the matter is when the law is implemented as it is being implemented in Georgia, people are being disenfranchised and they do not have the right to vote. And so our argument is that we believe that the de facto denial of the right to vote violates the Constitution, and I'm very bullish on our chances. But I'm also very happy that we have other folks fighting this fight. Uh, Chairman Cummings, who is the chair of uh, the Oversight Committee in Congress in the House of Representatives, has demanded documents from the Secretary of State and the governor to investigate their bad actions. We also have been part of hearings, field hearings, being led by Congresswoman Marsha Fudge, who's the chair of the subcommittee on uh, oversight for administration looking at the Voting Rights Act. And then Terry Sewell, who's pushing for the restoration of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. They're all paying attention to what we're doing. And so I do think, whether it's through litigation or legislation, I do think we will be successful at some point. Now, I've heard that Georgia isn't the only state with this kind of problem. What's your sense of the national picture right now? So one of the reasons I'm traveling the country and talking about this is that it's not endemic to Georgia. I think Georgia had not only the most singular example of voter suppression, but it's the most directly connected to the victory or loss in an election. Voter suppression is real, it's endemic, it's pervasive, and it's been around forever. But in my case, I had essentially a cartoon villain opponent and the clearest case of not only voter suppression, but the main actor who clearly controlled the outcome of the election. However, we know that in North Dakota in 2018, people were denied the right to vote because they were Native American. We know that in 2016, if you lived in Wisconsin or Michigan, there were efforts at voter suppression that were incredibly successful. We know that in Florida, 
there is a perennial issue with whether or not votes count. We know that in Texas and in North Carolina, voter registration, which is the predicate to being able to cast your ballot, has been made nearly impossible by third parties in Texas and been made very difficult in North Carolina. And across the country, including in California and other places, there are methods of voter suppression that are insidious and almost invisible to the eye unless you're the person trying to vote. And so my responsibility is to use Georgia as an object lesson. Uh, And because this is my state, to use our opportunities to try to solve it in Georgia. But we filed a federal lawsuit because our success in Georgia will affect the rest of the country. So let's let's talk about your book, Lead from the Outside. Um, It has exercises. In the first one, you call an ambition exercise. How come ambition is number one? Because ambition is the foundation for leadership. You have to want more. In fact, the the title of the chapter is Dare to Want More. And if you're from the outside, and and marginalization happens in a lot of ways. You can be from the outside because of race or gender or ethnicity or religion or class or simply, you know, because you're just different than those around you. But whatever keeps you outside of the normative power structure, to get inside, you've got to have a reason. And we often mistake dreams for ambition. Dreams are things that make you happy, but you can forget a dream. In fact, we often forget our (laughs) dreams. Ambition animates you. It fires you up, and it's unsettling. But we have to then harness it. And the challenge is that if you're from the outside, you're rarely taught how to harness your ambition. If you come from a powerful family, if you come from a power structure that validates your every thought, then there are systems in place to help you turn ambition almost automatically into action. But for the rest of us, we have to have an architecture. And that means we have to know what we're trying to get to. And so what I wanted to do in this book, and the whole book is about this, is take what I learned through trial and error, but also through being deeply anal retentive and methodical, and write it down, create a handbook for those of us who do not have those systems that are already designed for our success. And the bird agrees. Birds are chirping with happiness. (laughs) One of the surprising parts to me about your book is the section about the hack. You say that you have been a good hacker. This is kind of surprising. What do you mean? (laughs) Well, you know, in, in, in modern parlance, we talk about hacking things, hacking meals. It's basically how do you figure out what the system is and then how do you get around it or through it without doing the regular stuff. A lot of my life has been about a hack. It's been about how do you take these traditional spaces and figure out if you can't get them to let you in, how do you figure out your own way inside? Uh, You know, in years past, it would have been called guerrilla warfare. Uh, (laughs) But for me, it's, it's understanding that when you first look at opportunity, when you first look at these doorways and gateways, there may seem to be no possible point of entry. And that's why we have to figure out our own codes and our own systems. And so what I tried to do with this book, and particularly in this chapter, is talk about how I've hacked my way inside, how I've, both in the the sort of computer science and video games parlance, but also in the very, you know, pedestrian physical idea of just hacking through. When you've got to slice through, if you've ever worked on a farm, when you've got to cut through the weeds and get through the detritus, Sometimes it's just about recognizing you're not going to get there the normal way, so you're going to have to fight your way through. In your book, you say you reject the idea of work-life balance. K- 
Can you explain why? Because work-life balance is a lie. It is a bald-faced lie told by someone who was selling something, and you need to return whatever it is they sold you. I, I've been asked how I write novels and run for office and start companies. And what I'm supposed to say is that, well, I figured out this amazing, you know, equilibrium and things. That's not true. I've made mistakes. I've forfeited other opportunities. I've not done things that I care about because I haven't cared about them as much as I cared about the thing I wanted to do at that moment. And what work-life balance does is it creates a false sense of opportunity, but it also puts pressure on you in ways that are untenable because eventually you're going to fail. Things are going to fall apart. So instead, I operate under work-life Jenga. That's the game where everything gets stacked up and you have to pull pieces out and you hope like hell that nothing falls over. But the reality is, like Jenga, when everything collapses in on itself, the job isn't to ignore that it fell apart. It's to rebuild it and figure out a stronger structure to make it work. You have a couple of other wonderful rules. If it can't change the world, we don't do it. And that's followed by don't deal with jerks. Yes. So <laughs> I, I started a company right after I left the city attorney's office. And that was my first venture into entrepreneurship. And I realized I needed a partner in part because I think you always get better when you have people around you who know things that you don't know and who push you to be stronger. My first business partner was a woman named Laura Hodgson. Laura and I have since started three other companies. But in our first one in Insomnia, we had a set of rules. And one of our rules was we don't work with jerks. It was slightly more crass when we wrote it down. Uh, but our point was this. We'd both come from spaces where we'd worked with people who weren't just difficult to deal with. They were disrespectful. They devalued us, in some ways dehumanized us. And when you work in those spaces and you feel compelled to keep doing it, you start to internalize how you're treated and you validate it. And so we had a rule that if people were not respectful of our values, we could disagree. You could have a difficult personality, but you could not devalue who we were. You could not treat us as less than real and human and whole. And so we had a rule that if we just didn't respect you and thought that you were a bad person or just not a good person, the money wasn't worth it. I want to ask a little about your family. You have the most wonderful acknowledgments, and it's clear you have an amazing family. I'm especially interested in your parents because they started in Mississippi, and I'm, I'm old enough to know what it meant to be a black person in Mississippi. Could you tell us a little about them? My parents are the most extraordinary people I've ever known, and I've met some really amazing people. But my mom and dad are both from Hattiesburg, Mississippi. My mom is one of seven. My dad is one of five. My dad jokes that he's from the wrong side of the track and my mom's from the wrong side of the wrong side of the tracks. Like she's who poor people made fun of. Uh, my mother's life story is, especially her younger years, is like a Dickens novel. I mean, every time she tells us something, we go and buy her more stuff. <laughs> what they did was not let their humble beginnings, in some ways their tragic beginnings, they didn't allow that to diminish what they thought they were capable of. You know, my father is dyslexic. He didn't learn to read functionally. I mean, he was able to make his way through school. He made his way through college because he has this amazing memory and he's incredibly smart. But he learned to read better by reading to my youngest sister when 
he had fallen and hurt himself and wasn't able to work full time and they needed someone to watch my youngest sister when she they couldn't afford kindergarten for her or pre-k my mother has always been just this brilliant woman who can make things happen out of nothing and I saw her do that not only as a mom and a librarian but also as a pastor I saw my father fight hard for people who didn't always value and respect him and sometimes benefited from his work but he didn't benefit from it and then I saw them turn those moments of defeat into opportunities for triumph by becoming ministers and they were called into the ministry and they live their faith and their sense of justice and responsibility every single day and as long as they are not disappointed in me I know I'm doing the right thing one last thing the amazing thing about your book is that it doesn't say vote for me because I can do this it says you can do this even if you're an outsider I wrote this book in part because I was giving talks to different groups. I was I was actually in the middle of my campaign. I just started my campaign for governor. It was in the middle of the primary and wanted to provide a handbook. Uh, there are a lot of leadership books out there and there are a lot of political memoirs. I didn't want to write a memoir because I've met me and I, I'm I like my story, but I don't think it's sufficient to sustain a whole book. But I think there were things I did that positioned me to be the first black woman to be a nominee for a party, a major party for governor. I knew there were things I had done that allowed me to help start companies that were helping women and people of color and other communities access capital. I'd started this voter registration organization that had registered uh, by the end of 2018 more than 300,000 people. There were things I knew, but I also understood that knowledge in my head wasn't helping other people and that one-off conversations were inefficient and I really value efficiency. And so for me, this was really about enlarging the army of people who can be successful, especially those who discount themselves before anyone else can. When you're on the outside, you're perennially looking in, trying to figure out how to get inside. And I believe that if you can find a doorway or a cracked window and shove yourself through that space, your responsibility is not to run and get the next thing you need. Your job is to turn around and prop it open and send out a clarion call and tell folks, here's where it is. Come on through. And that's what I tried to do. Well, Stacey Abrams, thanks so much for talking with us today. And we're really excited about whatever it is you do next. John, this has been delightful. Thank you so much for having me. We spoke with Stacey Abrams in April 2019. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Bye.